to Brother McDonald, and we do want to continue to lift he and his family in our prayers. As you know, last week um, he was away in Georgia for the funeral services for his for his son. Thank you. Turn it down just a bit, a little more. Um, but it's good to have him back, and we do want to continue to keep he and uh, his family in prayer. Our scripture, again, is taken from Ecclesiastes, and we'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king to in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the, the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which, uh, of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. Yet to be among those who, comes, uh, who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. It is an, an, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. May God richly bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As I was in much prayer and contemplation over my next series of sermons, I ultimately ended up coming here to the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the reasons that um, I found it a, a suitable place to, to, uh, to unpack is because I see it, in a sense, as a companion to our Wednesday night studies through the book of Revelation. As you know, in the book of Revelation, in spite of all of the things that we see and people point to all of the doomsday sayers or whatever, but is what is at the core of, of Revelation is two things. One, the comfort for the people of God as we, uh, as we see God's purposes in human history unfolding, moving us towards the dual aims of judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous. That's one thing, the comfort of God's people. But the other thing that Revelation is, is full of are warnings against the seductions of the dragon slash the beast slash the false prophet slash the harlot. And by those things, it's not necessarily individuals, but it's the zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the age. 
It's the effort to define human purpose. It's the effort to define human satisfaction apart from uh, the, 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 the meanings that God has established or what God has established in his word and in his will for his people. So the, the seducement or the seduction of the world, the seduction of the harlot, is an attempt to find ultimacy and, and, and ultimate meaning and purpose apart from God and apart from what God has revealed. And that's really what we see set forth in here in, in the book of, 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 of Ecclesiastes. The idea that uh, harmony with God through Christ is what gives us purpose. And if we do not, if we are not reconciled to God through Christ, then there's nothing that we can experience on a horizontal plane that will give us fullness and satisfaction. So therefore, minus the prophetic imagery of the book of Revelation, much of the message that is set forth in the book of Ecclesiastes is really what's played out in everyday life. The challenges, the issues of life, those things that are set forth in the book of Ecclesiastes deals with those existential moments and crises that have been and will continue to be until the Lord returns. What am I here for? And does it make sense? Now, I'm not going to get into the details on the background of the book. There are arguments as to who the actual author is. We see here in the introduction, he identifies himself as being a son of David and, some, and, and the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And some have taken that to explicitly refer to Samson or to Solomon. Now, hold in mind that when the scriptures, and especially in relation to a king, when it says one is the son of a king, it doesn't necessarily mean immediate generation. It could be on down the line. And I say that because one of the other uh, arguments uh, exegetically for the authorship of the book is not Solomon himself, but someone other than Solomon at a way later point in redemptive history. In fact, some have argued that the book was probably composed while the children of Israel were in exile. And they argue because of the language linguistically that some of the Hebrew that's used there bears expressions that are more closely associated with the Aramaic language, which doesn't come into use among the people of God until after the exile. Others will look at what, uh, what, what it says here about the author, that not only was he a is he the son of David, but he is the king who is in Jerusalem. And then when you look at some of the other descriptions, self-descriptions of the author at other points in the book, others suggest that clearly is, is Solomon when it looks and it refers to his wealth and, and how he had many things and many wives, etc. So it was obviously Solomon. My point is this, the content of the book is greater than the author. And so the message of the book is what's more important. So whether it was Solomon while he was in Jerusalem or if it's some other author who writes it at a different point in the history of the people, uh, it's, it's, it, it's really irrelevant as it relates to the message. But uh, that's not going to be my focal point as we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. Also, I do want to say that I'm also not going to, because the book is not a historical narrative, Therefore, it's not following a chronological order. 
and because the book is not a doctrinal thesis or a letter to a particular church, it can be, it's, it's, it's structured almost like, or very much like the wisdom literature, that it, you don't have to follow a particular sequence, and for that reason, it's not my intention to preach verse by verse, word for word, every book, every word in the book. What we will do is extract various portions or from various portions of the book of Ecclesiastes as we unfold its overarching message. It does not, it doesn't, it won't break the continuity of logic, nor will it break the continuity of any particular chronology. Now, it's not, so it's not my intention to exhaust the entire book. However, as we work through it, what we will explore the most is, are the most germane thoughts that are set forth in this book. And as such, we would look at it as, it, uh, as, as we see it here in the prologue, because uh, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1 really serve as the prologue to the whole book. And there are some things that are set forth in the prologue that run throughout the course of the whole book. And so we will extract some of the major themes that are, that are addressed there without, any, without losing the content or the essence of the overall message of the book. And again, I would argue that's basically what, what we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes is a practical unfolding of the, of the warnings and the exhortations that we see in the book of Revelation for the people of God to live in this world with wisdom and not be seduced by the spirit of the age in terms of defining our own purpose or even um, the essence of, human, of, of life on earth. So let's begin. There are three main thoughts that we'll look at as we look at the prologue here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Here's the, the first thing that, that's worth noting. There are two concepts that are introduced from the, in, in, in these early verses that really form the foundation of most of the thought that's expressed throughout the book of, of Ecclesiastes. Two concepts. The first one is, we see it in verse 2. And, uh, and actually, the, this, this concept is mentioned five times in verse 2 alone. And that comes to us in the English as vanity. That is a central word in the book of Ecclesiastes. It appears five times alone in verse 2, and it occurs 33 more times throughout the body of the book. Now, the word that's translated here, the Hebrew word that's translated here as vanity, really can't be captured by a single English word. The best that we do is, is really, it's, it's two, it's, a, it's not a, a combination, but it's really two ideas that are, that are best summarized with, or, or two words that best summarize, English words, that best summarize the Hebrew word that's translated here as vanity. One of them is frustration, and the other one is perplexity, or being perplexed. So the two concepts, are, or these two words, or this, this, these two words are, are what's meant by the one word that appears over 30 or 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes as vanity, frustration, and 
perplexity or being perplexed. And that's the idea, that's the sentiment that's being expressed. Now, the, the second concept that's introduced here in the, plot, in the prologue, and it, it also is repeated throughout the book, is the phrase that we see at the end of verse 3. We also see it in verse 9 as well as in verse 14. And that phrase is, under the sun. Under the sun. Now, this phrase appears 28 times in total in the book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times we see vanity, 28 times we see under the sun. Now, on the surface, you might assume that under the sun simply means life here on earth. But contextually, as the writer uses it throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's clear that he means something other than or more than just life here on earth. The best way to summarize it is he is referring to living life in or on the earth that is cursed. Life under the sun refers to living life in a fallen world, a cursed creation. And really, if you understand that, that he is talking about, what he's talking about here is living life in a fallen, <clears throat> fallen world, the persistent theme of this book is that living in a fallen world is full of frustration and is very perplexing. Here's the second thing that's, that's, that we see here in the prologue that gives substance and, and, and brings together the, the overall content of the book. Uh, and that is, you, you, you see, the, the idea of, of uh, perplexity and frustration is heightened because we also understand that living in a fallen world means... Not just that life is frustrating and perplexing, but part of what makes it frustrating and, and, and perplexing, or frustrating and perplexing, is the fact that the God who is the creator is the governor and the sustainer of all aspects of life in a fallen world. And, and, and the, the writer emphasizes this. We see that he is the sustainer and the governor of everything that takes place within the created order. And this includes, as we see in the text, this includes the passing of human generations in verse 4. Generations come and generations go. And generations come and go at the will and whim of the creator. But we also see that the blowing of the wind and the flowing of the streams as set forth in verses 6 and 7, they don't blow because mother nature. They blow because the God who creates all things causes them to blow. The rivers and the streams flow because there is, a, there is one who generates the source by which they flow. So God, who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, brings generations on the face of the earth and he wipes them away. And the God, who is the one responsible for the rising and the falling of one generation to the next, is also responsible for the, for the blowing of the wind, and the flowing of the streams 
And also we see in verse 13 that he's also responsible for human activities. So the whole world, being as it is, being as it is, and God being as he is, the whole world with flowing streams and and blowing winds, the whole world with human engagements, the whole world with life and death, all of these things as they are, and then you couple that with the fact that God exists, and not only does he exist, that he's in control. So the idea that a loving God is in control, and yet generations pass. The fact that a loving God is in control, who's given me my assignment, given me my work to do. And when I do it, I get no satisfaction. Yeah, that's perplexing. Yeah, that's, that's frustrating. We will see that what, is, what will be unpacked throughout the course of, of the book of Ecclesiastes is that the writer will point in two directions about living in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world either disconnected from the creator or connected to him. But the other thing that is evident is that even if you are connected to the creator by faith, in his promises that doesn't remove the frustrations and it doesn't remove the perplexities. And so on the one hand, he says, he repeats the word vanity 38 times in the book. 28 times he tells us what it means to live in a fallen world. And what sort of fleshes that out is the knowledge that this fallen world full of perplexities and full of frustrations is still being governed by the God of creation. And that brings us to the essential, the essential theme of the book, which is captured really in the question that's raised in verse 3. And even though these are a lot of verses, I want to wrap everything up and around this particular question that's raised in verse 3. In verse 3, the question that the writer puts out is, what does man gain by all of the toil with which he toils under the sun? Now understand that when he speaks of toiling under the sun, We've already explained that under the sun refers to living in a fallen world. And by toiling, he doesn't just mean our labor. And by labor, he doesn't just mean, and by labor, I don't just mean vocation. In other words, the means by which you earn a living. I think it certainly includes that, but it means more than that. It really means by all of the activity or the assignment that God has given for his image bearers. And the question that he is asking is, what does, it, what does man gain? 
when we do everything that we've been assigned to do, when we go through the phases of life, what is, is there any gain in anything that we do under the sun? In fact, he sort, of, he sort of dances around the big question that will be unpacked throughout the balance of the book, and that is, does it really matter? And that's the issue that's being raised here. Does it really matter? Existential, uh, pessimistic existentialism in philosophy basically says the only thing that exists is what is, and so nothing matters beyond right now. And some have suggested that perhaps the writer of Ecclesiastes is very pessimistic in his tone. And maybe he's, this is the, the memoir of someone who's been burned out. Maybe this is the memoir of someone who has become frustrated. And I, don't, I, I really think that the overtones of pessimism that, that we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are strategically used to make a bigger point. I don't think he's saying this is what I feel when he speaks of the frustrations of life. And so here again is the question that he puts to us, what does man gain? by all of the toil with, uh, at which he is engaged under the sun. Now, I think what he is, again, alluding to here on a broader level is what do we expect to get when we do what we're supposed to do? This is really connected to something that he says later in, in verse 13, where he says about, when, when he talks about toil, the toil, the idea of what man labors at, what man toils at, it's, it's not disconnected from God. In verse 13, he indicates that God is the one who has given man a business, or as he says, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is the, what is the business that God has given man to be busy with? Now we know that from Genesis, that is what we have, what we call the creation mandate. In the creation mandate, God tells Adam and Eve to, to, to uh, subdue the earth and to exercise dominion in all of the earth. That's what he tells them to do, to, to take care. I've created it, you maintain it. Adam was given the responsibility of naming all of the animals, he was given, they were not only given the responsibility as gardeners, so to, so to speak, but they were also to, to reflect and represent the, the glory of, of God in the created order, in the context even of their own relationship. And so Adam and Eve were a reflection and an extension of, of God's authority and God's glory in the created realm. But the Westminster Catechism, question number one, puts it best to us, even in the, the, West, the Baptist version of it, the 1689 Confession of Faith. Question number one says, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And brothers and sisters, before Genesis 3, that was a wonderful thing. Before Genesis 3, to 
enjoy God or to, 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 to uh, glorify God was to do and function as he created them to, to, uh, for and to enjoy him. Meet with him in the garden in worship and fellowship, resting on the Sabbath and enjoying the very presence of God. But then Genesis 3 did happen, didn't it? And here's what Genesis 3 does not change. It does not change the obligation for humans to consciously and intentionally glorify God. And it doesn't change the obligation for humans to enjoy him. But what it does change is that now we live in a fallen, cursed creation. Now there is resistance internally and horizontally, externally to all of the things that we were intended to enjoy. And so when, 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 when the writer here says that our eyes are never satisfied, it's not that we don't have a sense of, of, of being filled, but the problem is sin has messed up everything. We are not released from our obligation from working the field, but now there are going to be thorns. Physical and figurative. And we discover there's not just thorns in the field. There's thorns in the home. We discover that all of the obligations that we have, all of those things that are supposed to bring us joy, Because we are now disconnected, there is resistance and there's rebellion. But the obligation does not change. So essentially, the writer is here throughout the book is going to be raising this question from a couple different vantage points. Can man gain anything from his toils under the sun. And, and here's what, what, what sort of sweeps over that, what kind of, what kind of hangs, hovers over that, that very thought. The very thought, can man gain? There is a presupposition that drives that. And the presupposition is that man is searching The human creature is searching for fullness, for satisfaction, for meaning. And the question that from one vantage point that he's putting to us is can man gain that significance, that fullness, that satisfaction under the sun in a fallen world? Now, brothers and sisters, this is where the temptation comes in. This is where the message of the book of Revelation comes in. This is where the harlot, the beast, whether it's a nation or whether it's a cause, this is where, this is where the false prophets come in. 
that give religious legitimacy to those illegitimate sources of fulfillment. Because they are the ones that are saying, I've got you. You want purpose? You want substance? You want meaning? You want fulfillment in life? I've got you. And they point us to a whole host of things where we define ourselves and our satisfaction apart from the God who causes the winds to blow and the streams to flow. And so this writer comes as one who says, I've been there, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt and the coffee mug. And I'm here to tell you that the search for purpose, meaning, and substance under the, under the sun or in a fallen world, in order to achieve that in a fallen world, you need an intervention into that fallen world. Two questions that, ra- that are ra- raised here is, can we find fulfillment in the, business, in, in, in the business that God has given us to pursue, can we find fulfillment in a can we find fulfillment in doing what God has called us to do in a fallen world? And then on top of that, if God sovereignly governs the world and we are engaged in doing what He has given us to do. Why are there setbacks? Why are there disappointments? And why are there failures? And why is it that when I achieve, when I, when I cross off the last goal on my goal list, why do I still feel empty? Why do I strive for my, my, my heritage and, and then at the end of it, before, I'm, before my funeral is over, they forget I even lived? Why? If God is gracious, if God is good, if God is loving, then why, when I try, I fail? Why is it that others that seem to disregard the things of God, why why is it that I don't see them in line to get food? Why is it that I don't see them with wayward children? Brothers and sisters, here's what the writer is getting at. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we are reminded that the world in which we live is under the sun, is fallen. And the mistake is not that God has disconnected us from our purpose, it's not that He, in in fact, one of the reasons we seek glory is because we've been created for glory. 
But glory that is disconnected from him is no glory at all. And here's our frustration. We know what we ought to do. And sometimes we expect to see in the here and now. We expect God to pause from his schedule and to give us a standing ovation. And what he does is he allows the sun to rise and he lets it set. He lets one generation rise and he brings them down. He allows us to experience all of the things that are involved with thorns. But brothers and sisters, it's through those thorns that he who created us for, as, as and we'll get to this later, he, he says that he's put eternity in our breasts. And he who has created us for eternal glory intervenes into our broken world and he gives us satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose apart from the institutions and the things that we see and in spite of the frustrations and, and roadblocks that we encounter so that we know as the writer says here in the prologue the earth will remain forever. And here's what heaven is for those who are connected to their ultimate purpose through Christ himself. I know some people think he's going to destroy the world. No, he's not going to destroy the world. He's going to get rid of that which is offensive in it. So that at the end, the question of what can man gain anything from his toils? Let me just give you the short answer to that. No. Anything that we have that allows us to, to, to experience our purpose on this world under the sun has been given to us. And what God has given us of eternal value, which is salvation from the life under the sun, from life in a fallen world. He's given us salvation even as he moves it to its, its pinnacle point of, 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 of judgment. But the God who has saved us in this world will keep us so that we will be, be able to see the earth renewed because God has created it for us so that we in it would enjoy him in eternal fellowship. The book of Ecclesiastes is really about living life in a fallen world that is always frustrating and perplexing without losing hope and without losing confidence in the God who controls the course of the seas and the streams 
and who controls the flow, uh, the, the, the wind, the blowing of the wind. That he who loved you and created you for his own purposes and redeemed you and recreated you will be with you even under the sun. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you.